Good morning, Summit Crossing. Welcome. Um, if you're visiting with us, um, I'm sure you're excited about that passage you just heard read. Believe it or not, we pick like the most sane part of the passage we're about to read. It gets worse, um, but it's, it's going to be good, I believe it. So um, once we dive into it, we are in Genesis. It's a, a series. So if you've been with us, you understand there's some context to this narrative, and I'm going to explain that um, as best I can. My name is Joel McCarty. Um, I'm one of the pastors here at Summit Crossing. Um, I'm not the normal teaching pastor. That's Jamie. Um, he'll be back next week. But since this passage is really hard, he gave it to me. I'm just joking. He didn't. Um, so I'm sure since it's Labor Day, we've got a lot of visitors. So this ought to be fun. No, but it, it's really good. It's exciting as we dive into Scripture um, to see that there is a purpose for every single chapter that we have in the Word of God. Um, it, it has a purpose, and it's very relevant to today. So we're actually going to jump right in. I do want to give a quick off-ramp that this is a highly sexualized narrative. So if you have kids in here that you don't want um, to hear some of this, then we're going to plow right through this. That's why we teach expositionally. We can't avoid the hard stuff. And the Bible doesn't avoid reality, um, which is full of sin and brokenness. And so just want to give that quick off-ramp for you guys so I cover myself so I don't get in trouble. All right. So quick review in Genesis, like very broad in like 10 seconds. We started in the garden with Adam, right? And then we got to the call of Abram to Isaac. And then we followed, spent a lot of time in the life of Jacob, the deceiver. And we saw how God was sanctifying him. And then last week in Genesis chapter 37, there was this transitional time where we got into the life of Joseph. And so in chapter 37, Joseph is introduced. He's um, left in a pit and then he's sold into Egypt. And then it just like leaves a cliffhanger and breaks the narrative of the story to start telling us about Judah. Um, but it's very relevant and there's a reason why. The narrator makes sure, as we heard about Judah, one of the leaders in this betrayal of Joseph, the narrator wants us to know how wicked Judah is for a purpose and for a reason. And so we get a glimpse into some of the most brokenness um, in the life of Judah that we'll see in, in chapter 38. And so I want, because we're going to talk a lot today about breakthroughs. I don't really have points, but kind of the theme is this idea of a breakthrough. In the midst of brokenness, in the midst of struggles, in the midst of darkness, we need a breakthrough. And if you've ever been in that stage where you, you feel like, as one of my counselors described, you're in a dark room, it's unfamiliar, and you can't see any light, and you don't know the way out, and you're just kind of fumbling, tripping over things, searching for the door to find an escape. Maybe you've been in that moment. Maybe you're there now where you feel like that, where you feel like you're in a fog. You're not functionally as, as you would normally. And, and when I feel that way, I call it like I'm in a funk. And I'll, sometimes it lasts for a day. Sometimes it lasts for months. But when I'm in those seasons, if you're like me, you like to control things. So you're like, if I just try really hard and I do the right things and maybe I force myself to smile a little bit, then everything will be okay. And, and it never works. I need something outside of myself to break me through this season, through this season of just brokenness, right? And a lot of times it's just a lot of little things. And I think I'm learning how to lament in those seasons and just give that up and give that to God and let him resurrect it instead of me trying to control it. But those seasons are hard. They're difficult. But when God brings us through, when he breaks through the pain, we are transformed. It has a purpose. In those seasons, we gain a greater knowledge of ourselves and our own weakness, and we gain a greater knowledge of God and his strength. And by gazing deeper on God and his glory and his magnificence, we are transformed. 
And that's what we're going to see today. We're going to read about, about a breakthrough that leads to lasting transformation. So I'd like to tell you where I'm going. Today is going to be a little different. I'm going to tell the narrative. We're going to get into the story. I'm going to ask you guys to immerse yourself into the characters of the story. Yes, it's jacked up. It's crazy. And I'll expound on the story when necessary to help explain it. And then we'll apply the story to, to our culture and our time. Where are we at as the people of God as we wrestle with what does being the people of God look like here in Limestone County in the century that we live in? And so as you'll see today, and I hope you've already seen this going through Genesis, this collection of books is not just about some moral lessons that we can learn. So to have a better life, to have your best life now, to be a better person, it's not just a roadmap. And if you just see the Bible as a bunch of principles on how to have a better marriage, on how to be a better parent or be a better child, or how to be the better version of you, you'll be sorely disappointed. Though those things are contained in here and we're not minimizing them, this is about a death to life transformation. It's about an awakening as we look into the scriptures and the word of God, an awakening to the depravity of our true selves without Christ, but also an awakening to the beauty and value of our true self in Christ. It's about God passionately pursuing and winning over his people in the broken everyday mess of life. We sell ourselves short when we make the Bible simply principles to be studied rather than something through which we experience the living word, Christ Jesus. And by this, we are brought closer to him and we are transformed further into his glorious image. That's why we love this book. That's why we love this book. And so again, we're going to see today if you think you can moralize it, good luck today. It's going to be really hard. It's jacked up, it's weird, but it's reality and God works his beautiful plan for his glory and for the joy of his people as they find their satisfaction in him. So let's dive in. Genesis chapter 38, verse one. I'm not going to read every verse that's in this narrative. I'll explain some of it and, and paraphrase. So Genesis chapter 38, verse one. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hiram. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. And yet again, she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. So as you'll see next week in Genesis chapter 39, Joseph is separated from his brothers and goes down to Egypt. Here, Judah willingly leaves his family in disobedience to God's commands and goes to the land of Canaan. And here he finds this Canaanite woman. We don't know her name. It's just this unnamed woman, the daughter of uh, Shua. We just find this unnamed woman and they have kind of just sums up a bunch of uh, a period of time, but they have three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. So we have Judah, this unnamed Canaanite woman, and then three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And so in verse 6, Judah takes a wife for Ur named Tamar. And Tamar is going to take center stage in this story. Um, finds a wife for Ur named Tamar. And the Bible tells us that he was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord put him to death. Now we can be like, why did the Lord put him to death? Well, it tells us because he was wicked and God cares about purity. But the main purpose of this narrative and what the, the author wants you to get is that it had nothing to do with Tamar. And you're going to see that come into play because Tamar is going to be blamed for the death of Ur. And so the narrator is very clear to point out that this was of no fault of Tamar that Ur is put to death. And so Ur is put to death. And to understand what happens moving forward, you need to know a couple things about the culture. First of all, a woman's standing and social status was tied heavily to her being married. 
A widow would often be neglected when their husband would pass away. See, her father had already given a bridal price to have her taken care of, and he was under no obligation to receive her back into his house. And so there was this custom called the Leverett custom, and what would happen if there was a younger brother who was still living at home that had not married, and then an older brother passes off, the younger brother would then step in and marry this woman, this widow, to care for her. And it was very transactional, but it was something that in this culture was a custom to protect these women. It eventually became a command. And so also something important to understand, sometimes that would even go to the father-in-law. The father-in-law would take this, um, his daughter-in-law in, and that wasn't a command when we get to the Israelite law, um, but in the customs and the culture of this day, that would happen. So you need to understand that for the story to make sense. And so Judah commands in um, chapter 38 and verse 8, Judah says to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. So we get a glimpse into Judah, and even he doesn't tell Onan to go marry her, which was the custom. He tells her to just go into her, just give her seed, and it would continue to allow his offspring. Judah's very selfish, and we, we see his selfishness come into play quite often in this narrative. And so he says, just go into her, raise up offspring for her brother. And so what Onan does in verse 9, I'll just read it because the ESV says it better than I could. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. So what you need to understand is, one, this was a continual thing. When I used to hear this story, I thought it was a one-time thing. But whenever he went in, he would waste the semen on the ground. So he is doing this continually. He's going in unto Tamar, having sexual relations with her, seeking sexual gratification, but does not want the responsibilities that is his. And if that doesn't speak to today's culture and the relevance, then I don't know what does, right? Because often we seek sexual gratification, but we don't want the commitment in a covenant of marriage. We don't want the responsibilities of caring for the children that come as a result of that. And this is what Onan is doing. He's very selfish. You you need to understand that Tamar is being abused time and time again. She has no one to go to. Most likely Tamar was actually blamed for not getting pregnant because that also brought women value. Most likely people looked at her and said, man, Tamar is worthless because she can't have kids when they don't even know what's actually going on. Tamar is in a a family that she doesn't really know that well. Judah, we're going to see, begins to hate her. He's oppressing her. She has nowhere to turn. She is the victim in this situation. And so God sees he's near to the brokenhearted and he responds by also putting Onan to death. Verse 10, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord and he put him to death also. And so to recap, Again, we have Judah, we have his wife, we have these three sons, Ur, Onan, Sheila. Tamar marries Ur, Ur passes off, marries Onan, or doesn't marry Onan, but Onan abuses her and uses her. He passes off the scene. And so what's going to happen? How does Judah respond? So in verse 11, Judah says to Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house. So go back to your father's house, stay a widow until Sheila, my son, grows up. Why does he say this? And he says, for he feared that he, Sheila, would die like his brother's. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So Judah, who's only concerned about continuing his offspring, becomes scared. He's blaming Tamar for the death of Ur and Onan and putting that on her shoulders, though it had to do with, I don't, I'm not going to blame the way he raised the son. For whatever reason, they were wicked, right? And instead of pay, placing blame where it belongs, he places it on the most vulnerable in this culture, in this society. And he blames her and says, just go to your father's house. When Sheila gets older, we'll come get you. Don't call us. We'll call you. And he's obviously is being deceptive here. We see this line of deception that continues. And he tells Tamar, just go. Remember her father, we don't know what that situation was like. He had no obligation to care for her. 
He'd already given the bridal price. This could have been a very brutal situation. She could have been a slave in her own house. And Judah is a part of this. Judah is being very oppressive. And so in verse 12, the narrator begins to speed up and he, he skips some time. And he says, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. So Judah's wife dies. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. So some time passes, Judah's wife dies, and there's this kind of stalemate, right? Because Judah wants kids. He wants offspring, um, but he won't give Shelah to Tamar for fear that Shelah will die. And then his own wife dies, so he can't have any more sons. But Shelah's betrothed to Tamar, so he's kind of finding a way to work the system where he can still be the good guy and feel self-righteous, but he's still oppressing and abusing Tamar. Again, the story seems as if there's no hope. We need a breakthrough. So Judah spends a little time mourning, and he wants to further the process of mourning so he goes to the sheep shearing festival. Now, you have to know what the sheep shearing festival is to understand. This was a time, it was kind of like payday, and it was where men would go down to this place away from their families and their wife and kids, and it was a, a place of debauchery. Um, there were prostitutes running around, and it was like what happens at the sheep shearing festival stays at the sheep shearing festival, right? Like, that's, that's what was going on here. And so you need to understand that because Tamar gets wind of this. So she knows what's going on. She gets wind in verse 13. Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with the veil, wrapping herself up, sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Sheila was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. Now, you need to understand where Tamar's coming from. Other, it's really easy for us to pass judgment, especially from our Western perspective. Tamar has been forgotten about. She realizes this. In, in verse 14, she says, for she saw that Sheila was grown up and she had not been given him in marriage. She's waiting patiently, not telling what she's enduring, but she finds out that Judah was just being deceitful and she sees this. She's just a pawn in the game of these men who are abusing their power and control to keep her in submission and poverty. She has been reduced to an object to be used. So she responds in accordance with how she has been treated by using her body as an object to get the seed that was rightfully hers. She's helpless. She's hopeless. She feels as if she has no other options and no way to turn. She is the victim up to this point. The seed's been withheld from her, so she pursues it at any cost. See, it's easy for us to look at what Tamar's doing and what she's about to do and partake in this act and call it immoral because of sexual sin. And and that's true. It is immoral. But the scriptures are very clear that the greater sin is the oppression of Tamar by Judah. That that act is also immoral. And we have to question ourselves because it's easy for me to look at someone and say they're involved in sexual sin that's immoral. But the pride and the hypocrisy and the prejudices that and the judgment that is in my own heart, I view that as excusable instead of immoral. That is also immoral. And so what she does is bold and courageous. It could easily cost her her life. She covers herself with the veil. This reminds us of Laban's deception of Jacob earlier in the Genesis narrative. Um, and there's this play on words that's kind of cool here. Um, that the, She covers herself with the veil, and it's not like we think of a wedding veil. It would have been um, where you could, she could still look through her eyes, but that's about all you could see was her eyes. And she's sitting at this gate of a name, which means gate of the eyes. And so there's this language about these, these eyes, right? And what it's pointing out is that Judah, we're going to see over and over Judah's ignorance in this story, that he is blind to reality. He's blind to the truth. And we're going to see this over and over again. He's blamed Tamar wrongly. He thinks he's righteous, but he's lifted up in arrogance. He does not know a lot, though he thinks he does. He does what's right in his own eyes, but he is blind and ignorant. He has blind spots. 
So Judas sees her in verse 15. He thinks she's a prostitute. And he turns and says, let me come into you. So she says, what will you give me that you may come into me? They start bargaining. He says, I'll send you a goat. She says, I'm not going to take the goat unless you give me like uh, something, a pledge that I can keep until you send the goat. And then I'll give you the pledge back. And this is what she's after. And Judah, he's just wanting sexual gratification. He's not thinking properly. He says, what do you want? Anything. What pledge shall I give you? He interrupts her in the middle of her sentence. And she says, your signet and your cord and your staff. So no big deal, right? This would have been very stupid for Judah to agree to this because this was like you asking me for my driver's license and my social security card and a credit card. And I said, okay, sure. This signet and this, this um, staff and this cord represented their place in society, represented who they were. It was their identification. But Judah, since he's obviously not thinking clearly, he wants one thing. He gives them to her and they go in and do the deed. She conceives by him, the narrator tells us. And in verse 19, she arises, goes away, taking off her veil and puts on the garment of her widowhood. Um, Again, he does not have eyes to see that this is Tamar. He's so ignorant. Um, But unknowingly, he gives Tamar the seed that he and his family have intentionally kept from her for years. So they go their separate ways. Tamar goes back to her place of shame, a a slave. She goes back to her place of, of shame and poverty. Judah goes back to his place of power and control. And Judah's again wants to has once again used Tamar for his pleasure. But this time, Tamar has gotten the better of Judah. See, Tamar doesn't know she's conceived at this point, though the narrator has told us she has. Um, she could easily go back to doing her own thing and being stuck in that situation. Judah could go about his merry way with no repercussions. But we continue the story and see what, see what happens. So in verse 20, um, I'll just sum this up. Basically, Judah gets back home. He gets the young goat, sends it by Hira um, to go find this prostitute, um, do the deed for him so he doesn't have to. He's worried about his reputation. He can't find her, obviously. She's gone back to her father's house, can't find her, comes back. And Judah says, Hira says, I can't find her. And Judah replies in verse 23, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. I'll get a new, I'll go down to the DMV. I'll get a new, you know, identification and just let her keep it. We'll be laughed at. He's worried about his reputation. Reminds us of Jacob when his daughter was raped and there was, uh, his sons responded in violence and all he cared about was not the brokenness and the, the repercussions of that, but that people would look down on him, that he would be laughed at. And so Judah, very selfish. He doesn't care about keeping his word. He says, let it be. No skin off his back. He's good. Or so he thinks. So God's working in this story, and we're going to see it. In Genesis, uh, in verse 24, it says, About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. So three months pass. Tamar cannot hide that she's been pregnant. Judah gets wind that she's been immoral. He's indignant. In the Hebrew, this is two words, burn her. No questions, no hearing her out, just burn her. And even for this culture, this was a very um, strong punishment. To burn somebody meant you were eliminating them and even their memory from the face of the earth because burial was a big deal. And so to burn her and put her to ashes was saying, get rid of her. Judah finally sees this opportunity to get rid of this woman that has been a thorn in his side for a long time. He finally is vindicated because he blamed her for the death of his first two sons. And now he can say, see, I told you so. As she becomes a self-fulfilled prophecy and becomes what he said all along she was, he blames her and takes no blame on himself, takes no responsibility. Hope you can see the irony and the hypocrisy going on here. I mean, he hasn't cared for her in the least bit. Now he wants to control her life and make a decision to burn her. 
He's been grossly immoral himself, not just regarding the way he has sexually oppressed her, but his classism towards her, his sexism towards her is just as immoral. And so again, we're at a moment where we need a breakthrough. See, Tamar, who is with Judah's child, and Judah doesn't even know it, is about to be burned for her immorality by the same man who has impregnated her. And that's just what's going on in this story. See, there's a greater story because we're going to talk about it in a minute, but Tamar is bearing the line of Christ. And this is an attack of the evil one to put to death the line of Christ so that there could be no Messiah, so that there could be no reversal of the curse. We need a breakthrough. And so in verse 25, as she's being brought out, she sends word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. So literally, as she's being dragged to the stake to be burned. She reveals the signet and this cord and this staff, and she sends word to her father-in-law to identify whose these are. Again, this language of blindness or knowledge to identify, to have something brought to light. This word identify is so much more than just kind of look at it and see whose it is. No, it's look deep and gaze at the brokenness in your own heart. This is just evidence of what's going on in your own heart. This is God's grace to Judah and Tamar. In this very public scene, Tamar calls Judah to own up and identify what has been in his own heart. So again, we, we wonder, what will Judah's response be? Will, there, will the burning continue? Will there be a breakthrough? Judah has the power to do so. To embarrass him in front of all these people, Judah could have continued with the burning. What does Judah do in verse 26? Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. This response by Judah is massive. This is the major breakthrough in the story, and it leads to Judah's transformation. For Judah to own up to what he did, and the greater sin, as he says, is that he withheld Sheila from her. He oppressed her, was even greater than the immoral act with her, as he says. And this reminds us of David's you are the man moment. Remember when he had had relations with Bathsheba and he had put Uriah to death and Nathan comes in and tells him this story and he's indignant that, man, I can't believe that something like that would happen. Nathan says, you are the man. And David also owns up. Notice his language. She is more righteous than I. This is important because... This story doesn't fit into any cultural narrative. The kingdom of God doesn't. It's like the third way. Because some of us will cringe at the sexual morality and that will bother us the worst. Um, But the oppression doesn't really bother us or cause us to cringe. And there's another group where the oppression of her would just cause us to cringe and say it's horrible, but the sexual morality, will you do what you want with your body? But this doesn't fit into any category. See, Judah says she is not innocent, but she is more righteous than I, because Judah was the one in the place of power and control and had the greater responsibility to care for those around him. Her sexual sin is never condoned, never condoned, but the greater sin is the oppression. I think you'll see this clear. In Hosea chapter four, there's this passage where Israel has been playing the whore, chasing after other gods. They've been, they were still religious. They did the deeds, but they were unhospitable to the foreigner. They were oppressive toward the weak. And so God says something to them through the prophet Hosea in verse 13 of Hosea chapter four. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth because their shade is good 
Therefore, your daughters play the whore and your brides commit adultery. Listen to verse 14. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. God puts the greater responsibility on those who are supposed to be in leadership positions. And it says they were a people without understanding. Again, they were blind. They had no knowledge. They were blind to their own hypocrisy. When you are given power, control, and privilege, what you do with that is very important. The, the answer is not to feel guilty. It's not to say, man, I have wealth that's been granted to me by God. I, I feel guilty because that's not the answer. The answer is to allow that to flow through you. God gives you either a platform or a place in society or wealth so that you can then allow that to flow through you to the world, right? That's the whole scope of scripture, blessed to be a blessing. And so when we hoard that, when we fight to retain that, like it was ours in the first place, the answer is repentance that leads to transformation. This is what Judah does. He repents of his abuse of power. And we know it's true repentance because it's really cool. We get to see a clear picture of Judah's transformation. And I'm going to skip ahead and step a little bit on Jamie's toes. He said it was okay if I did. But in Genesis chapter 44, there's this moment where Joseph has been brought into power in Egypt. And he's kind of playing this game with his brothers. They've been to Egypt once and they go back and they say, Joseph says that they have to bring Benjamin, who is the youngest, and Jacob, their father, didn't want to let, they'd already lost Joseph. He didn't want to lose Benjamin as well. But he goes back and what Joseph says, and I won't go over the events that lead up to this, but Joseph said, Benjamin has to stay here as my slave. The rest of you guys can go back to your homeland, take the grain you need, but leave Benjamin here. The old Judah wouldn't have cared. Good. I got my, what I need. We'll leave Benjamin. He's the most vulnerable. He's the weakest anyways. We can use and abuse him. But listen to what he says after this moment in Genesis chapter 44, verse 33. Now, therefore, please Let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. Let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So rather than using the most vulnerable for his own gain, Judah offers to give up his very life for the most vulnerable in this group. This is what God does. This is how he flips things on his head. This is how he transforms us and sanctifies. He takes the hardest of hearts and makes them soft and lets them break for those that are in broken situations. God uses the weak things of the world to confound the wise. See, Judah had to be brought to a point where he was, saw himself as lower than Tamar. She is more righteous than I for him to be transformed. He had to see himself as in need of a redeemer before he could be redeemed. Tamar knew the whole time she needed a redeemer. She was in this broken, oppressed place, but this oppressor needed to see himself as lower than the very one he was oppressing. The goal again is not guilt when that happens. It is repentance, restoration, and transformation. And here's the beauty. Your transformation is tied to the greater purpose of God. That gives us hope. It gives it value. You're not just being transformed to be a more moral person. There's a greater story going on and God is transforming you so that through you, you can become ministers of reconciliation. You can break down those barriers and break down those walls and fling the doors open like he did to you and invite people into his kingdom. There's a purpose to your transformation and it's tied to God's purposes, which gives it, we know what's gonna happen. That's the beauty of it. In the end of Genesis chapter 38, going back there, Tamar, 
they find out she's pregnant with twins. And as she's in labor, one of them, Zira, put out his hand. And so they put a scarlet thread on Zira's hand and they would do that. So when they had the babies, they would know which one was the firstborn. And so Zira puts forth her hand, but then Perez, the hand gets pulled back and Perez comes through. And the midwife says in, in verse 29, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. So there's again this younger over the older, there's this grace working. But again, we see this language of breach or breakthrough. This is this breakthrough in the story. The upside down way of the kingdom is shown. See, and and God in his grace is working out a story that we're going to read about in Matthew. But there's this prophecy again in Genesis chapter 49 of these sons of Tamar and this lineage of Judah. And in Genesis 49 verse 8, it says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? Look at this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Again, you see this language of a staff. This staff that was used to humiliate Judah and bring about repentance and transformation. This staff is promised to never depart from his feet until all nations bow down in obedience, looking forward to the one true king who bears the staff and all nations will bow down in obedience to King Jesus. See, God's purposes are tied to his transformation. This was a grace of God for Judah to be humbled. See, the difference between Judah carrying forth the line of Christ and not his older brothers who rightfully should have, Judah wasn't less wicked. He wasn't more righteous. He was repentant. We don't see his brothers repent at all, but we see Judah being humbled and repentant. And we see this breakthrough in his life. And we fast forward to another time of silence and despair. This time between our Old Testament and our New Testament, 400 years of silence. And the people of God ask in despair, where is the promised one? Where is that perfect human we were promised? Where is the Messiah? Are we forgotten about? Are we alone? Is there any hope? They ask as Tamar did, where is our spouse? Where is the thing we were promised? Where is our hope? Where is that king? And we need another breakthrough. And humbly and silently, a baby was born. And in Matthew 1, we read of this, and I want you to listen closely as we fly through these genealogies. But this is important. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron and Hezron, the father of Ram. So do you see what's going on here? After we've read this crazy, jacked-up story, Jesus includes Judah and Tamar together in his genealogy. Tamar is in the line of Jesus, and so is Judah. God humiliates the oppressor, and he lifts up the oppressed because Jesus is the answer for both. This is the upside-down kingdom, and I wouldn't have written my story this way. It doesn't make sense to include these people in his genealogy. 
and to include women in his genealogy. You did not do this. Women were viewed as property, but Jesus intentionally includes these women, four women, five including Mary in his genealogy. And all these women had questionable past, questionable motives. They were not of the pure Israelite um, seed, but he brings them into his kingdom. Because Jesus wants to make clear that the oppressed and the broken and the outcast are welcome here. Even Mary would be questioned for her immorality. Jesus being born as a virgin, yes, it's a miracle. But it's also him emptying himself. Years later, they called him as a, as a degrading term, an illegitimate child. He doesn't have any value. He's illegitimate. That was intentional on behalf of Jesus. He takes the lowest place. Ultimately, Jesus will give his life for the outcast and oppressed on the cross. And again, we see a moment where we need a breakthrough, but in the resurrection, the breakthrough happens and he puts to right all the brokenness of this age. See, Jesus stepping on the scene is about so much more than just him saving your individual soul. Though, don't let me minimize that. Like, that's so important. Jesus loves you personally and intimately. He's your daddy. But he's also putting to right all the brokenness with this groaning that the earth is just waiting to be restored and the curse and the brokenness of the fall. Jesus is stepping on the scene and saying, I am reversing the curse. I am taking the oppressed and I am giving them a place of honor in my kingdom. There's a promise he's keeping, this promise about the one who would set the world to right, one who would humble the arrogant and lift up the lowly, one who would turn tables and say, my house is a house of prayer for all peoples, not just the religious elite, one who would eat with sinners and prostitutes, the lowly and forgotten, the immigrant and the outcast the marginalized, the oppressed, the Tamars of this world who have been used and abused. And he doesn't only give them just a place in the kingdom. He swings open the door and he he throws a party and he rolls out the red carpet and he says, here, you are my son and you are my daughter and you are welcome in my kingdom. See, in the cross, Jesus took the worst that death had to offer. He took the worst punch. He took all of death, all of sin, all of doubt, all fear and all shame, and he took it. But in the resurrection, as he stares those things in the face and walks out of that tomb, he reveals that those things do not have power over him. Death has now been put to death. Shame has now been embarrassed. And fear has retreated in fear. Doubts now doubt themselves because Jesus has defeated them all. This is our king. He is there for the lowly, the forgotten, the broken, the oppressed. This is what Jesus does. If you are oppressed and you're marginalized and you feel that your answer is not to try to make yourself better so this age accepts you. No, run to Jesus. Like the woman who had the issue of blood. She wasn't even supposed to be by the law inside the city gates at all. But she cares about chasing after Jesus. She's heard about this man who could heal her and give her life and give her healing. So she crawls and she works through the crowd and she's trying to just touch the hem of his robe. And she finally gets through and just touches the hem of his robe. And Jesus senses that purity and virtue has gone out of her. And so he stops and he says, who touched me? Disciples are like, well, duh, like we're in a crowd. There's a lot of people touching Jesus. He's like, no, this is different. And this woman, the scriptures tell us that she knew she was healed, but she's still battling that shame and guilt because she doesn't know how people are going to respond. 
Because she's not supposed to be there. She's unclean. She's not supposed to be inside the city gates. No one wants to have anything to do with her. But Jesus bends down and says, daughter, be of good cheer. Smile. Cheer up. Your faith has made you whole. Daughter, this king of the universe, creator of the world, the one who spoke this into existence, calls her daughter and says, lift your head. You have a place in my kingdom. Your faith has made you whole. And the question we must ask ourselves, many of you relate with the brokenness. And this is, there's nuances here. Sometimes you relate with the broken one, the one who's being oppressed. And sometimes you relate to the one who's abusing your power and control. So I understand it's not black and white. But I have to ask myself, I come from a background of judgment and where I would stand in arrogance upon people. And I have to ask myself, can I see myself as lower than the one I despise the most? The person you judge the most and you read on Facebook or you watch the news and you say that either group of people or that person is messed up. I'm glad I'm not like them. Do you see yourself as more in need of a redeemer than those people? That's who Jesus came to save. Again, the answer is repentance and transformation. I find it in my own heart. I don't call my hypocrisy immoral. I don't call my arrogance, my pride, and my supremacy as immoral and deadly sin. So when we find this in our hearts, we repent and we run to Jesus. This is not the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom is to swing open the doors and welcome the broken into our midst. That's what James hits on. In the book of James, he talks about showing partiality and they would take this poor man and give him this place kind of in the corner, as we would say, on the back row. But then they take this rich man, a wealthy man, and parade him in front of everybody. And he says, you've made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. James 2, 5, listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Verse 12. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is not an option for the people of God. If you struggle with showing mercy, again, it's not to beat you up, but I ask you to reflect and gaze on the mercy that you have been shown. You don't really understand how broken you were before Jesus came in. You did not find your way to Jesus. You were broken. You were dead at the bottom of the ocean. And by his grace and grace alone, he breathed life into you and gave you a a place in the kingdom. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? This is not something that only some people in the church have. This is believers. Do Do we see ourselves as in need of a savior? And so to our culture, and in our place, around us. What, how do we see those that are, our culture says it's actually okay to marginalize? Because that's the true test of whether you see yourself as in need of mercy is how you treat those in your culture that's socially acceptable. You see your ethnicity as superior than others, right? There are those in the minority communities that can feel marginalized and we don't care because we're the majority community. Whether that be in here, the black community, the Hispanic community, Right? What about sexism? Do you see your gender as greater than others? I grew up in an environment that was very suppressive toward women and I'm still finding that in my own heart. I'm like, gosh, I just want to be, and and I have to repent of that and say, God, how am I thinking that way? That's not how you are. Maybe your social status or your class. 
You drive by the homeless person, you see yourself as better than them, or the young lady that's turned to drugs or prostitution, becoming a self-fulfilled prophecy. And if you just took time to get to know them, I think you would see that most of the time their decisions are as a result of the hand they've been dealt. And it doesn't excuse it. Again, we're not all totally victims. We desire for this to be a place, a family, a church family where the outcast, the oppressed, the broken, the misfits, the marginalized, the anomalies to be a part of our family and not just a part, but celebrated and rejoiced when they're among us. That's who we all were before Christ. We were outside the kingdom and Jesus flung open the doors and lived among us as flesh to bring us to himself. So he invites us all in. He says, lift your head, son and daughter. Smile, rejoice. He rejoices over us. I struggle to believe that he's actually doing that. He says, you have a place in my kingdom. You have a place in my family. And just as Tamar in Judah's name was written in the book of Matthew, recording her part in the family of God, so our names together are recorded in the eternal book of life. We want this to be a place where the blue collar and the white collar come together. We want this to be a place where the African-American and the whites come together and the Hispanic, just diverse community of people where we are all together just chasing hard after Jesus, loving each other well. So, again, in close, this story is not about becoming a more pure, moral, better version of yourself. That's shallow, that's empty. It's about pursuing God, which is much greater than pursuing morality. So to the oppressor, when you struggle with oppressing others, humble yourself in the sight of God. You have nothing that you have not been given and run to the cross. There is mercy abundant. And to the oppressed, to the broken, lift your head, weary sinner. Run to the cross. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to find, uh, let culture accept you. Run to the cross. There is mercy abundant. We're gonna spend some time in prayer now. We're going to have a few prayer directors on the screen, and we're just going to spend some time praying these. Um, Number one, ask God to reveal blind spots in your own life and then repent of them. Don't excuse them. Repentance is a grace and a gift. As Christians, we've got to understand that. None of us are perfected yet, so our lives should be lives of repentance, moment by moment. God, what? Cleanse me of that. Forgive me of that. Constant repentance. So ask God for blind spots. That's why they're called blind spots, because you don't see them. And then ask God to grant you the grace to trust that he will bring about a breakthrough even in the midst of brokenness. When you're in the position of the Tamar and, and you don't have anywhere to go, ask God to trust that he will bring about a breakthrough and that resurrection awaits. Our hope is in Christ, in Christ alone. And then last, just thank God. If you're a follower of Jesus, just thank him, praise him. As we sang a few minutes ago, he's worthy to be praised. Worship him greatly. Thank God for lifting up our heads our heads bowed in shame, lifting them up and bringing us into his kingdom as his sons and daughters. Just thank him for that. So we're going to spend some time doing that. I'll come and close us in prayer and then we're going to take communion together. Let's pray.